Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People. The Constitution matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, a senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And my wonderful collaborator this morning is Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor. And we're engaged in a, a thought experiment, you know, looking at if we were to revise, amend, correct, or even propose a brand new constitution. What would be some of the things that would need to be corrected in our current constitution or altered altogether or deleted from it? Because we can look at what's happening in Washington, D.C. today. And I think most Americans who are awake, <laughs> they're not, uh, you know, so hiding under some rocks somewhere aware that Washington, D.C. is a mess beyond compare. Uh, $32 trillion is just the beginning of the problems of uh, them not only indebting us. Uh, the citizens today, but our children, our grandchildren and great grandchildren. And who knows, at the rate they're spending money, it may be a debt that can never be repaid, which, you know, really puts the situation in our country that we've been uh, swept up into debt slavery. Oh, yeah, it's not as maybe terrible as chattel slavery. And, you know, people might uh, curse at me for making such a remark, but it is slavery nonetheless when a, a, a large portion of your earnings, that is, the fruit of your labor is taken from you. Now, for the average American today, that's 50%. You know, Tax Freedom Day is somewhere at the beginning of July for the average American after they pay federal, state, local, township, all the taxes they have to pay, all the fees, combine it all, our government takes more than half of the fruits of our labor. And of course, with some Americans, it's more than that. And, and other Americans, of course, it is less than that. But nonetheless, what is apparent is that tax rate that we're currently being taxed at will not be enough to deal with the mounting debt that's to the tune of trillions and trillions of dollars increasing every year. So uh, obviously then to uh, pay this or even to pay the interest on this enormous debt, it means they're going to have to tax us at a higher and higher rate. So what, 50% will creep to 55 or 60 or 70? And you know, before you know it, or not much better than the serf who uh, had to give over most of his uh, crop that he you know, did all the hard work in the field for. He has to give most of that to the lord of the manor, and what he gets to keep for himself and his family is a small proportion, and increasingly that small proportion becomes more and more difficult to live on, as most Americans are discovering since 2020, where we have seen rampant inflation eat away at the value of our dollar and the value of our earnings, and and indeed, the grocery store and the gas pump, all the places you, you, you typically have to spend money, we're finding uh, it's like a boa constrictor. You know, every time you take a breath and the boa constrictors around you, it squeezes a little tighter. So the next breath you take cannot be quite as large as the one you just took. And then it squeezes a little tighter and a little tighter and a little tighter till finally you reach that point where you cannot breathe at all. And uh, I don't know that we're close to that point of not being able to breathe at all, but it is indeed apparent Washington, D.C. is out of control. The politicians of both parties, and I'm be, be, I'll be bipartisan here in my criticism because, you know, there's a backroom deal we understand that uh, Kevin McCarthy made to continue to fund billions of dollars to the Ukraine. What? Billions of dollars to the Ukraine on the backs of taxpayers who are already overtaxed? Wow. That's, you know, there's the leadership of the Republican Party in some ways just as bad and, and 
some ways not, but some ways just as bad as the Republicans. So we're in a terrible mess. And perhaps what we need to do is lock down the federal government to prevent it from doing things that were never intended by the founders, other than Alexander Hamilton, who's a bad egg in the, in the basket there. But uh, other than he, I think most of the founders intended the language to be taken at its face value of the Constitution and no implied powers to be read between the lines by somebody like Hamilton's. Oh, you know, we can do this and that and the other thing. They're, oh, yeah, they're not there in the Constitution, but we read between the lines and we see that's an implied power. No, no, no. I think most of the founders and most of those who ratified and signed the Constitution did not believe such at all. And a good example of that would be James Madison. And you can read his uh, uh, Kentucky Resolves, where he wrote that the federal legislation passed and signed by President Adams was unconstitutional and therefore would not apply in the state of Kentucky. And sad to say that that's the, uh, you know, one of the few times in the history of our country a state has stood up to the federal tyrant and said, stop right there. Stop at the borders of our state. We're not going to permit you to violate the United States Constitution within the boundaries of our state. But quite clearly, most states are bought and paid for today. They just do whatever the federal monster tells them to do. And we need some means by which we can lock down that Leviathan monster, that Frankenstein monster in Washington, D.C., and prevent it from continuing to run roughshod over we, the people. So, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts about uh, the legislative uh, design of a new constitution? After the significant changes to the structure of government proposed previously, one might expect comparable changes to a new constitution in the article that addresses the legislative branch, Congress. That will not be the case for the following reasons. First, some of those changes had already been made via amendments to the Constitution of 1787. Second, other changes made in the structure of, a, uh, of government under a new constitution already severely limit Congress's power to violate a constitution. An argument might be made that if Hamilton's so-called implied powers had been rejected during George Washington's first administration, there would be no need for a new constitution. Congress would already have been properly constrained. But that is alternative history. The fact is that Washington supported Hamilton and the license to violate the spirit of the Constitution was established. Based upon reasons previously stated, much of Article 4 of a new Constitution seems to be like Article 1 of the Constitution of 1787. Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution of 1787 is retained verbatim. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. Section 2 begins identically. The House of Representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states, and the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislature. No person shall be a representative who shall not have attained to the age of 25 years and been seven years a citizen in the United States, and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of that state in which he shall be chosen. The next part of Article 1, Section 2 would be eliminated because the federal government would no longer be in the taxing business. It could only create an allocation of the cost of federal operations, and it would be up to the states to meet that allocation. Part of the section was made obsolete by Amendment 13 that made slavery unconstitutional. 
and Amendment 16 that supposedly gave the federal government the power to tax individual incomes is eliminated. Representatives in direct taxes shall be a portion among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of, of years, and excluding Indians not taxed three-fifths of all other persons. The replacement language would be, representatives shall be apportioned among the several states, which may be included within this federation, according to their respective numbers. Note the replacement of union with federation. The former term has been abused and confused with the term, the Articles of Confederation, perpetual union. Constitution of 1787 destroyed the perpetual union. But nonetheless, President Lincoln launched the deadly war between the states based upon his perspective of preserving the Union. Even the Constitution of 1787 was not designed to create a Union or a national government. The intent then, and under a new Constitution, is to create a federation of sovereign Republican states, granting the federal government limited enumerated powers. Part of Section 2 would be written as... The actual enumeration shall be made every 10 years as under the prior Constitution. The next statement is problematic. The number of representatives shall not exceed one for every 30,000, but each state shall have at least one representative. The not exceed one for every 30,000 rule serves no purpose today and should be dropped. The current rule was established in uh, 1929 through... Um, uh, a legislation which set the number of representatives at 435. That is probably a reasonable number, but there is an irony in the name of the act. There's nothing that a Congress can do in a session that can't be undone in a subsequent session, so there is nothing permanent about the number 435. Additionally, Congress should never be allowed to set the size of its own body of government. The replacement language would be, the number of representatives shall be 435. Incorporating Amendment 20, as it applies to Congress, um, the terms and senators and representatives shall end at noon on the third day of January of the years in which such terms would have ended if this article had not been ratified, and the terms of their successors shall then begin. The remainder of Article 1, Section 2 would be slightly modified. When vacancies occur, or when vacancies happen, in the representation from any state, the executive authority thereof shall issue writs of election to fill such vacancies. The House of Representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers and shall have the sole power of impeachment of federal officials, with the exception of a president violating Article 1, Section 7. While obvious, the House of Representatives' power to impeach is limited to federal officials. The Section 7 um, exception will be described when that section is described. Section 3 begins with a statement that would be applicable in a new constitution. The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state, chosen by the legislature thereof for six years, and each senator would have one vote. This would repeal the current Constitution's Amendment 17, direct election of senators, which conflicts with the original intent of the Constitution. During the transition from the current to a new constitution, the one-third replacement rule would be preserved such that only those senators reaching the end of their term under the prior constitution would be required to stand for election under the rules of a new constitution. Notice that there are no term limits 
for either representatives or senators under a new constitution because they violate the principle of representative government. The dangers to be feared from career politicians are addressed more substantially under a new constitution. The age rule for qualification as a senator would be retained. No person shall be a senator who, who shall not have attained to the age of 35, 30 years and been nine years a citizen of the United States and who shall not, when elected, be uh, uh, an inhabitant of that state for which he shall be chosen. The rule about the vice president being the president of the Senate would be modified. The vice president of the United States shall be president of the Senate but shall have no vote. What could be further from the intent of representative government than to allow a person not elected to a representative body to decide the outcomes of that body's deliberations? The following provision would be unmodified. The Senate shall choose their other officers and also a president pro tempore in absence of the vice president or when he shall exercise the office of president of the United States. Likewise, the Senate would retain its power to try impeachments. The Senate shall have the power to try all impeachments of federal officials. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath of affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. Although impeachment has proven ineffective in restraining the unconstitutional actions of the past, a new constitution with a council of states having board of directors responsibility for overseeing federation functions, should reign in that behavior. Nonetheless, impeachment allows the federal system to correct itself without council of states intervention. The word sole is removed because the Senate will no longer have the final word, but the council of states should have no incentive to intervene as long as the Senate performs its constitutional responsibility. The language to try all impeachments of federal officials has always been implied, but is more specific than the current Constitution's language. The concluding language in Article 1, Section 3 of the current Constitution would be retained. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. Let's talk about elections. This section, section 4, uh, as modified by Amendment 20, would be retained. The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. But the Council of States may at any time by law make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. Congress should not be making rules for election that um, body of government uh, for election to that body of government. This is the proper role of the Council of States. Section 4 would conclude, the Congress shall assemble at least once in every year, and such meeting shall be at noon on the third day of January. Section 5, the conduct of business. This section would be unmodified. Each house shall be the judge of the, of the elections, returns, and qualifications of its own members, and a majority of each shall constitute a quorum to do business. <clears throat> but a smaller number <clears throat> may, adjourn, may adjourn from day to day and may be authorized to compel the attendance of absent members in such manner and under such penalties as each house shall 
uh, each house may provide. Each house may determine the rules of its proceedings, punish its members for disorderly conduct, and with a concurrence of two-thirds expel a member. Each house shall keep a journal of its proceedings, and from time to time publish the same, accepting such parts as may in their judgment require secrecy, and the yeas and nays of the members of each house on any question shall, at the desire of one-fifth of those present, be entered on the journal. Neither house, during the session of Congress, shall, without the consent of the other, adjourn for more than three days, nor to any other place than that to which the two houses shall be sitting. The Council of States, in its oversight capacity, would have the power to overrule the Houses of Congress concerning judgment of elections. Section 6, Compensation of Members of Congress. This section of the current Constitution would be retained. The Senators and Representatives shall receive a compensation for their services to be ascertained by law and paid out of the Treasury of the United States. They shall, in all cases, except treason, felony, and breach of the peace, be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses, in going to and returning from the same. And for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. The wording of the current Constitution's Amendment 27 would be added. No law bearing the compensation for the services of the senators and representatives shall take effect until an election of representatives shall have intervened. The remainder of the current Constitution's Article 1, Section 6 would be retained. No senator or representative shall, during the time for which he or she uh, uh, was elected, be appointed to any civil office under the authority of the United States, which shall have been created, or the emoluments whereof shall have been increased during such time, and no person holding any office under the United States shall be a member of either house during his or her continuance in office. That brings us to Section 7 which is the passage of a bill into law. The wording of this section would be essentially retained with two major exceptions. One, the president may not veto certain powers of Congress, such as the power to declare war, and two, appropriation bills have special treatment. The new section seven would read, all bills for raising revenue and appropriation shall originate in the House of Representatives, but the Senate may propose or concur with amendments as on other bills. Appropriation bills may only allocate federal funds for legislation that has been previously passed into law. These modifications return the power of the purse to the House of Representatives and eliminate the temptation to insert ordinary legislation into appropriation bills. The current procedure for passing legislation would be modified extensively by the elimination of presidential veto power. In addition, a president, bypassing this procedure, as President Obama did with the Affordable Care Act, would be tried in the Senate under impeachment rule, bypassing the need to initiate impeachment proceedings in the House of Representatives. The role of the president under a new constitution would be to execute, not make the law. Every bill which shall have passed the House of Representatives and the Senate shall before it become a law be presented to the president of the United States, any president attempting to execute a bill not properly passed by Congress will be subject to impeachment trial in the Senate, bypassing the need for the House of Representatives to initiate articles of, of impeachment. So who's going to be eligible to vote? In general, voting is controlled by the states 
although there are constraints that are placed on the states concerning Amendments 19, a women's uh, eligibility to vote, and 26, eligibility to vote at age 18. These will be covered in a subsequent article to a new constitution. All right. Wow. Thank you, Phil. This is, this is great because many of the best parts of our current constitution are being preserved while some of the problems that we uh, see have arisen are also being addressed by uh, the proposed language here. So this is, this is very good. Um, and uh, I hope you won't mind, but uh, I'll have some suggestions. Uh, we're kind of in a, you might call us a, a, a debate over the Constitution and the provisions and, you know, sort of what happened in Philadelphia in 1778 uh, or 1787. But uh, obviously, we're, we're just the two of us and <laughs> rubbing against one another on some of uh, the ideas here. I definitely agree wholeheartedly with returning the taxing power to the states. Federal government should have no taxing power whatsoever over the individual citizen. They need to send a tax bill to the state and the state uh, legislature and the structure of the state uh, determines how that state is going to raise those those funds that are to be forwarded then to uh, the federal government. Now, one of the things that uh, I firmly agree with is here what uh, is no longer having the popular election of senators, what the 17th Amendment uh, accomplished, that... Uh, they are appointed by the state legislature. And I guess what, what might strengthen this, in my view, would be to add some of the language that was in the Articles of Confederation, whereby the states reserve the right to recall their senators at any moment in time. That is, they, they saw the senator because the design of this is that the Senate really represents the state legislatures at the federal government level so that the state has a say in whether any bill, uh, proposed bill, passes. So let's take one obvious, uh, you know, pork barrel project. There what was it called the uh, the billion dollar bridge to nowhere, or was it the million dollar bridge? I don't remember. Anyway, a huge amount of money wasted in Alaska to build a bridge to some little village that you know <laughs> hardly anybody. Uh, yeah, it was just a ridiculous boondoggle, a waste of money. Obviously, uh, you know, a payoff that if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, kind of thing that that happens all the time. Well, um, if the states had a say through their senators about any spending bill that was going to be passed because the states were the ones required to raise the revenue from their own citizens. That means the legislature of the state were going to be very, very extremely careful that there was no wasteful spending taking place uh, in Washington, D.C. Oh, like the, oh, how many billions, I don't know how many hundreds of billions it may be now that uh, we have wasted in the Ukraine, in my opinion. Now, I know some people might be upset that, oh, you don't support the war in Ukraine? No, it, it has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with the United States. It's a waste of money. And obviously, there's a, a backslash, uh, a backflush of, of money that comes back to corrupt politicians through the Ukraine, one of the most corrupt nations on earth. Uh, but anyway, I love the idea of saying, nope, no taxing power directly towards the citizen of the United States, you know, the federal government, could tax corporations, perhaps, or could tax non-resident aliens, that is, people working in the United States who are not legally citizens of the United States uh, at, at this point. But yes, eliminating that 17th Amendment and returning to the states the recall power, that's the only correction I might have or addition that we would put into print that they have the recall power over senators, not the recall power over uh, the, um, the House of Representatives, because those are elected by the people, so they're popularly elected. It would have to be the people that recall them. And again, every two years, the people have the opportunity to recall 
uh, their their representative in the House of Representatives, but the uh, legislature appointing a senator. That senator is going to be in office for six years. Now, a lot of damage can be done in six years. So I would love to see that that recall power in, included in that. The other thing uh, regarding the payment for those who are in the House and in the Senate, I know that you're following the language here of our U.S. Constitution that uh, that paycheck basically won't be changed. It uh, can't be altered. It can't be reduced and so on. It needs to be equal. Uh, but the paycheck comes from the federal treasury. And that's the current constitution states that. And here's my thought on that, that, that I have a little little peek with that, uh, that idea. And that is this, your loyalty always tends to be to the one who produces your paycheck. And if your paycheck is coming from the federal government, your loyalty is going to tend towards that federal system and whatever it is that uh, benefits that federal system. Whereas if you're getting paid your paycheck as a senator, your paycheck as a House of Rep, your paycheck's coming from your state, which, by the way, might uh, allow that some states are paying a different level than other states. I, I recognize that that might be a problem, but your loyalty is going to be to your state government. In fact, you're going to be concerned that your state treasury is healthy uh, and less concerned about the federal treasury. And I, I, you know, yeah, I can't help but think that many people in Congress, both House and Senate currently, knowing that their paycheck, which is, I guess, a six-figure paycheck these days, you know, uh, that that paycheck is coming out of the federal treasury might cause them to vote in ways that try to be certain that that federal treasury is sound. Now, we know what uh, just transpired this weekend, uh, this past weekend, at least, uh, on the, uh, the, the right up to the very last hour <laughs> before October 1st and the fiscal year came to an end and the threat of shutting down the federal government was was looming large and could they broker a deal and finally they did they brokered a 45 day extension so 45 days from now there'll be another brouhaha about the uh, federal but anyway the point being that if your paycheck is coming from uh, the federal treasury you're far more concerned about the health of that federal treasury than you really are about your state treasury and i think both those in the House of Representatives and those in the Senate ought to be more concerned about their state getting what it needs and their state being sound financially and their state not having to tax their own people too heavily, that that would be kind of their first concern and first priority, which I think might tend to be the case if they're receiving their paycheck uh, from the state. Now, of course, if that change that I'm proposing was to be made, that would, of course, alter the language that we're borrowing from the 27th Amendment. That uh, you know, no pay increases can take place until the next election is held. Well, that becomes a, a difficult issue because that really then would devolve to what the state is deciding in terms of how the state is choosing to pay uh, their member of the House of Representatives or uh, uh, their 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 senator. Now, the other factor along those same lines, on and this one I don't have a a solid answer to, but I do know this that currently. Our members in the House of Representatives, on average, there are exceptions, but on average, they're representing three quarters of a million people in, in terms of the populace, three quarters of a million people. And I have never met my representative in the House of Representatives. I used to know when we, before we were redistricted out of the, uh, uh, Congressman Andy Harris's district, I knew him. I had taught him the U.S. Constitution, uh, had, you know, he would recognize me when when I was at an event that he was at. I've spoken at events from the Diaz that he has spoken. So anyway, I had some connection, which is highly unusual. And I recognize it's highly unusual 
that your member in Congress of the House of Representatives would know who you are, let alone would hear or receive your call or, or communication. I remember trying to, we were going to be visiting some friends of mine, we we're going to be visiting down in, in Washington, D.C., and we thought, hey, we ought to go see our senator. And uh, we went and tried to make an appointment. It's like, oh, no, the senator's busy. Blah, blah. Well, can we meet with one of the uh, staff of, of this? Oh, no, well, staff are all busy. There's no time for you. You're just a peon, basically, is <laughs> the message very clear. And uh, so the House, in, in by and large, with few exceptions, I mean, obviously, a state like uh, the smallest state population-wise in the union, is, I believe, currently is Cheyenne, uh, Wyoming. Uh, and in Wyoming, I think it's just a little over 600,000 people. So they have one representative in the House of Representatives who's represented somewhere around 600 plus thousand people. But just about every other representative all across the country is representing three quarters of a million, 750,000 people. Now, I don't know the solution to this problem because uh, as you have stated in this, we need to keep it fixed at 435 representatives I guess, in order to make a workable uh, thing that would take place in the House of Representatives. And I hear that argument. But on the other hand, I feel like, well, you know, maybe the 30,000 number is not the right number. I know that there was a provision that was not passed. In other words, when the Bill of Rights were proposed, there were 12 items in the Bill of Rights, only 10 passed, forming our Bill of Rights. The 27th Amendment was uh, the 11th proposal, but the, the 12th proposal has never been passed. And it had to do with allowing the variation. Uh, uh, in the terms of the numbers of the House in the House of Representatives, to reach a, a maximum of 50,000. And again, maybe that's not the right number. Maybe it's 100,000. But I, I, I sense that we are not well represented in Congress. Uh, and maybe the answer is, well, Congress should do very, very, very little, which again is what the aim of, of our project here is to reduce the power of Congress, return a great deal of the the power of the civil government to our state governments and not have it at the federal level. So I don't really know the best answer to that question, 30,000 in the current constitution. And because they haven't amended the current constitution, they just declared, like like you said, that you know uh, they passed this uh, bill that really is oxymoronic in terms of its actual title is contradictory to what, what it, it is representing. But they just simply said, 1929, oh, we're, the Permanent Apportionment Act, we're only going to have 435, which at that point meant they were already violating the 30,000 rule. Uh, and uh, they were just saying, OK, we're, we're not having any more. Uh, and some have proposed, well, we ought to, uh, we ought to go back to the 30 or maybe the 50,000 rule, which means I think to be close to uh, 10,000 representatives in the House of Representatives, which means, again, that, that's kind of an unworkable thing. And I know there's some proposals I've read that would say, well, what it would mean is that these representatives would not have an office in Washington, which would cause them to be open to lobbyists. They would have an office back in their home district and they would communicate and be online for most of the meetings that would take place uh, in Congress. And therefore, uh, they would have the influence of the people who could walk in off the street and actually meet with you know, their representative and, and voice their opinion on, on particular bills being considered rather than what we have now that, uh, you know, basically the lobbyists have access to those people who supposedly are representing you. <laughs> the lobbyists have access, but you don't have access. Why? The lobbyist has a big fat wad of cash and you don't have anything really except your one vote to offer up to your representative. So I don't have a, a, a solid answer to that. The other thing I'm, I'm concerned about is Although I agree with you 
vice president. Uh, he he shouldn't be the tie-breaking vote uh, in, in the in in the Senate. My question would be, given that we have 100 senators, what if there is a tie? And and I don't have the answer to that, but something we ought to wrestle with. How would you break a tie in the Senate if you have 50-50, which um, these days with the makeup of the Senate, I think is 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 something that might happen more more frequently. But anyway, so that's another question that I'm not uh, sure I've got the answer to, but I'm, I'm you know just wrestling with um, uh, the. Uh, council of states, excellent, and and the fact that they're in charge of uh, of governing the elections and, and evaluating the elections, which is unlike our current constitution, it puts that in the hands of Senate and House, being able to basically influence how the elections for the Senate and House are happening in the states, and uh, that's not a good thing at all. I, I agree with you there. Council of states definitely uh, need to be the ones are that are doing that, um, and. Uh, uh, the other thing that is sort of hinted at, but not necessarily stated, that I think might be stated strongly, is that every piece of legislation needs to be a single subject bill. Now, I know the language that we're using and, and you proposed here would say that we're going to prevent, you know, the kind of pork barrel projects that get tacked onto bills, um, and, but perhaps some language that would really say that, that each bill that's being considered by uh, both branches of the both houses of the legislature the legislative branch must consider only single subject bills and that's why these bills that are a thousand pages long and nobody ever reads through them they just you know as pelosi infamously said well we got to pass the bill to know what's in it like what in the world yeah that that needs to come to an end and i think um what uh, has been proposed plus adding the idea of a single uh, a subject that, uh, to each each bill is very important. Now, um, when we consider the powers that we're removing from the federal government and bringing back to the state governments, that's a huge encouragement, and that that's a much uh, needed thing. And so, part of that is that um, the the federal government granting all of these uh, grants to states for various subject matters wind up being means of by which they can bribe the states to do the will of the federal government. And I'm not sure the best way to address this, but uh, perhaps in this legislative branch, we can uh, 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 specify that such uh, uh, type of grant legislation would be impermissible. That uh, the, the rather than the federal government, and of course, part of the solution would be that the federal government doesn't get to take an enormous amount of money out of the pockets of the taxpayers before they even see their paycheck. And I'll most people's direct uh, payment to the IRS happens before they ever even open their paycheck or or see it in their bank account. Uh, if that's stopped and uh, the the through the Senate, the states are in control of the spending of the federal government, and the states are the ones raising the funds. Uh, perhaps that would stop it, it, this pattern automatically. But I, I know from uh, just watching legislation closely in in our state capital as well as uh, even down to the county level. A friend of mine was on the county council and was the chairman of the county council, and he decried every grant that was uh, being voted on by his fellow council members. He was often, it was six to one, he was the only one saying, no, no, we don't want this money from the federal government. And his colleagues are saying, why? why? This is free money. This is free money. Let's take this money. You know, Here's uh, $5 million for our, our you know building uh, firehouses, and here's $5 million for this and that and the other thing. Uh, and he said, wait a minute, how many $5 million do you have to accept from the federal government until that firehouse is no longer your firehouse? That is not the firehouse of the county. It's the federal firehouse, which means it's going to do the bidding of its master, the federal government, and it's no longer the bidding of the, the county government. 
And this is true. Every grant coming from the federal government comes with strings attached. And those strings mean that the federal government, with enough of those strings, ultimately controls the county governments and controls the state governments. I would like to see all of those strings cut that uh, federal grants to uh, county governments, local township governments or, or state governments would not be a feature of this proposed constitution. What are your thoughts, Phil? And I know, uh, I'm sorry, I, I dumped a whole lot of ideas here and uh, uh, you haven't had time uh, like I have had to uh, ponder, digest and, and uh, consider response. Well, to the contrary, <laughs> I, I think you've raised some excellent points and I, I agree with most of them. Um, I have some reasons for uh, the differences that we might have, which I'll, I'll try to, to uh, explain. Um, and I'll just take, you know, everything in order, as you stated. State should have the right to recall uh, senators. Absolutely. No, no reason why explicit language cannot be put in. Um, you mentioned the Ukraine. Uh, I've heard a number that up to this point, the cost of that is $900 per household. Uh, um, let's see, the taxing power you mentioned something that you might allow uh, the federal government for the tax corporations and so forth, um, a foreign, uh, uh, any foreign entity. Uh, non-resident aliens. Non-resident yeah. alien. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'm, I'm kind of adamant on that one. I don't want them getting anywhere near the ability to tax. If the states want to do it, if the Council of States wants to do it, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Well, uh, I'd be in agreement with that, Phil. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, paycheck from the state to the uh, the senator. Good improvement. Yes. Um, on 750,000 people uh, per district, um, there's not much we can do about that. Um, uh, number one, we don't want to have more representatives down there. Uh, I don't know how they would uh, uh, accommodate that. Can you imagine... Two layers of, of representatives in the House of Representatives. I mean, they're creating enough mischief as it is. So I, I would go no further than 435 representatives altogether. But I think the key to that is the content of the, uh, of the, and the scope of the legislation. Um, you know, if you want to get closer to your representative, and I think that's a good idea, by the way, uh, if you want to get closer to your representative, uh, I think you ought to have fewer things that you need to talk about. Right now, the thing that, that is such a problem is that because the the uh, Constitution has been so expanded beyond its original powers, uh, and of course, as you mentioned, the size of the legislation is just ridiculous. There's no way. Uh, I believe that we could cut that down by 90%. And if we cut it down by 90%, there are not going to be a lot of things we need to talk to our representatives about. So I think that that really addresses the, the key part of that issue. But I do like your idea of keeping those uh, representatives home instead of allowing them to be in, in Washington, D.C. I mean, uh, let's have an electronic uh, uh, House of Representatives. And your, your point about the... Uh, uh, the lobbyists having access the w- under the current system, um, I think under the new constitution, uh, many of those things would be out of bounds. But still, I, I like the idea. Don't make it easy for them. Um, okay, um, I think uh, the answer to the the tie in the the Senate 
is that it's a non-approval of legislation. It's that just that simple. I mean, you if you as fail to get a let, majority, just let it just let it die. Let yep. it die. Mm-hmm. Let it die. Mm-hmm. Uh, a single subject bill. I love the idea. I wish I knew how to implement it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, definitely. And, and by the way, I, I know that there's some states. <laughs> well, actually, I think most all states have have language in their constitution. And over here in Maryland, they do that requires a single subject bill, and you know, so there's language that's been developed to accomplish that, and it has accomplished that at, at the state level. I know that when you know I'm dealing with the state legislature in their 90 day session, when I'm looking at a bill, it's usually four pages, you know, maybe sometimes six or seven, but rarely does it go beyond four pages because it's a single subject bill. It's very limited. It's you know focused. It's like a bullet rather than a shotgun. So that would be a, a I think the language has been developed at the state level that might be useful. Okay, I, I agree. If it works at the state level, we should incorporate it. Um, grant legislation is impermissible. Um, there are two things about that. I'm not going to defend that, by the way. Uh, you know, if we could put the language in, and maybe it's not needed, but uh, okay, let's put the language in to be, be specific. But uh, the thing about this is we're we're really addressing this in a different way. Number one, you've got an allocation system. Now, the way this is going to work, I'm sure, is that the individual departments will have to justify the funds that they are requesting. And then the overall uh, executive function will have to look at this, do whatever pairing is possible, because they know they have to, they have to get it through the House of Representatives. House of Representatives uh, knows that they can only go so far before the Council of States is going to step in and make them look like fools. So I think a great deal of that uh, will be very helpful. Uh, but there's the additional step, and that is separating the legislation and the allocation. Um, when you do that, I think uh, you've got all of these legislation ideas, and let's say that they've all been passed. Now you're, you're forced to live within your budget. What gets trimmed and what doesn't. So I think you're going to have very, very strong incentives on that that side. But I would still agree with you. Let's you know, uh, let's eliminate the uh, the grants to the states. I I don't I can't think of a single reason why the federal government needs to grant the the states. Yeah, Definitely I under agree. an allocation uh, allocation system. So right. those were my uh, immediate reactions. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Uh, one of the additional ones that, that you reminded me of as we were talking about budgeting is that I understand, and this is from people that I know who work in the federal government, you know, when the fiscal year comes around, uh, towards the end of the fiscal year, there's a spending spree because they got this money that if they don't spend this money, then it's gone. And so there's every incentive to just go waste a whole lot of money for things that are not needed necessarily. Uh, uh, just so that uh, when the next budget process comes around, they don't get their budget reduced. So the heads of departments are all about, hey, I'm going to g- grow in power and stature in my influence. My career is going to benefit if I spend more money year by year by year and hire more employees. And I got a bigger administration that I'm overseeing so that, that the, the motivation for the federal worker is to spend more money. And so I guess the, the thing that would make sense there would be uh, every department of the federal government is required to do a zero-based uh, budget. That is, everything gets zeroed out, and they've got to justify every single line item every single year, uh, not just, oh, hey, last year we had $8 billion in our budget, so this year we ought to have $8.1 billion simply because, oh, 
you know, we're, we, we're going to spend more money than we spent last year. And often they spent last year money that they did not need to spend, but they spent it because they know if they didn't spend it by the end of the fiscal year, well, that money would not only be gone for that year, that their budget would be reduced in the coming year. So that kind of system, I think, needs to be broken. Uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, not an accountant and so forth, so I don't know how much extra work, therefore, how much extra expense would be involved in going to zero-based budgeting, but uh, that idea at least makes sense to me. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts there? Absolute agreement. Absolutely. You know, uh, conditions change from year to year. There are, uh, and conditions can require that you use less funds than you had the, the prior year. So zero-based budgeting is the only alternative that is acceptable. I think that ought to be built in with specific language into the Constitution. I would agree with that. And I'll add my own story to this. And uh, you talked about uh, departments in the federal government wasting money. This goes all the way back to a battalion uh, that was doing border duty, by the way. Uh, and uh, an experience that I had, we came to the end of the, uh, the fiscal year, something of that nature. And um, the the commander had responsibly conserved on his uh, on fuel, and they had a surplus. Well, we learned that we had to get our tanks out, fill them up, and they burn a lot of gas in a hurry, and just have them uh, run around the parade ground in order to to use up all of the gasoline that they were that uh, had been allocated in the prior year. So, I mean, the culture goes all the way back to that level. This is a battalion. You know, we're not talking about a department of the of the federal government. We're talking about a battalion, a relatively small unit. Wow! So that, that tells us that the culture has been broken and broken for a long time. I'm oh, assuming absolutely. Phil that that's a number of number of decades ago that that incident took place. And but uh, I guess the problem is, it seems like the the culture currently, as it, and for obviously the generations as it's been constructed, rewards people who spend everything. And does not reward those who, like your your battalion commander, created a surplus. So perhaps you know rewards ought to be built in the other way. That hey, if if you have a surplus, you get rewarded instead of uh, losing. Somehow you're going to benefit. And I'm I'm not sure the best way to build that because uh, uh, you know when the spending is needed, yes, it, it needs to take place. But definitely we need to kill this idea that hey, we just got to spend it. I, I I forget who I was talking to in which branch or which which department, but uh, they were talking about. Um, it came to the year end, uh, fiscal year end, and you know, in the last month, there's this spending flurry, and they went out and bought a whole new office furniture for every every office on the floor. And it wasn't there was nothing wrong with the previous furniture. In fact, they just hauled the previous furniture out and threw it away. I was like, what? You know, that kind of wasteful spending because well, we got the money, we got to spend it. If we don't spend it before the end of the fiscal year, we're we're not going to have as big a budget next year. So. To break that, and, and again, I'm not sure exactly what would be the best way to craft the language in in this uh, part of the Constitution that deals with the legislative branch, but I think that would help. Uh, <laughs> our, our federal government is just so beyond um, what every family has to face in balancing their checkbook every month, and and you know, trying to 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 be sure that their income exceeds or at least meets their outgo every month. Well, our, our federal government doesn't live on that at all. Of course, we've talked about the huge problem there. The room is uh, the elephant in the room is literally the Federal Reserve, which prints up money ad infinitum, out of thin air, and therefore 
uh, in a sense, the, the the checkbook never needs to be balanced for the federal government because I oh, just print up another trillion dollars. You know, that's you know another trillion dollars, and uh, we'll go spend that, and no problem at all. Well, the problem is for we the people. That means all the money we have in our bank account, all the money we've invested in savings, even our house, all of those things. We're losing money to inflation. You know, you look at the, I just saw my property tax bill outrageous to me because they say the house is worth X. Well, the only reason it's worth that that amount much more than when I bought it is because of inflation. You know, if I took the money uh, of what this house is supposedly worth now, it's only worth that because the money itself, the dollar itself has declined in value so much over those years. So I'm paying higher taxes for something that is not worth any more than it was when I purchased it in the first place. So we, the people, are losing out every day where the Federal Reserve just gets to print this money out of thin air. And by doing so, they are stealing from us, literally stealing our savings, stealing our, our investments, stealing all that we have earned. Uh, and, and basically, it's a violation of God's commandment, the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. And I, I like what <laughs> Senator, uh, no, Congressman Ron Paul had on his desk uh, when he was in the House of Representatives, uh, he, and his sign said this, do not steal. The federal government doesn't like the competition. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think yeah. uh, uh, you've got a good point. Uh, I would agree. Uh, I don't know how to, to write the language. But there is a principle here that is very simple, and that is career advancement. And I think this is very consistent with, with small business, in particular, medium-sized business. You start to lose sight of it in these, these grandiose uh, corporations. Uh, those people who are responsible in managing money advance in those organizations. And likewise, in the federal government, if you are a responsible steward of the funds that are made available to you, you ought to be rewarded for that. Now, that should not be the only criterion, but it should be a major one. Amen. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this really calls into question the other problem that, well, we elect people who represent us in the House and Senate, and we elect the president who's supposed to execute the law. Uh, but uh, the people who are in the bureaucracy, you know, there's no term limits for them. You know, so the Every two years, every congressman, every House of Representatives stands for election every six years, a senator and the president four years. But the people who are in the bureaucracy running uh, the executive branch and so on, they're there for lifetime many, many cases. And one argument is say, well, that's a good thing because, you know, they know the system. But the bad side of that or the downside of that is they become part of a corrupt uh, system that continues the corruption sometimes no matter who's elected. And so the people, you know, have their representatives, but the representatives don't hold the real power. It's the people in the administrative state that hold that power. And uh, boy, that's a, that's a tough one to break. But I think what we're talking about here in the design of this new constitution would be that um, there's far less things the federal government gets to deal with. And the more we pull away from the federal government, put it, it back to the state governments, the less power they have, and therefore the less to, the less kind of corruption can take place in those federal bureaucracies. But indeed, many of those federal bureaucracies, they're, they're a lifetime uh, a cushy nest for, for somebody that, that is going to be in that, that administrative position. And the longer they're in that position, the more power they gain. Uh, and uh, that's, that's the problem. But I'm not sure how to solve it, because if you just wipe them clean every four years or eight years, whatever number you would choose, well, then you wouldn't have people who are able to maintain and keep it operating. So I don't know whether there needs to be some kind of term limits maybe uh, uh, for federal bureaucrats or 
some system by which uh, that kind of corruption can be prevented? Well, uh, I'm going to supply an answer here, which will be <laughs> harsh, which is uh, unless a department is uh, identified and unless its function is constitutional according to a new constitution, that department doesn't exist. And so the problem doesn't exist. Picture a world where there's no Department of Education, no Department of yes, Health, yes. no Department of, of the Interior. Uh, we don't need this homeland uh, defense thing, whatever that is. We've got a Department <laughs> yes. of Defense. If you mm -hmm. reduce the bureaucracy down to its bare bones minimum, uh, I think the rest of them will behave. Yeah, it'll, it'll take care of itself, yeah. <laughs> the world will get around. Mm -hmm. yeah, the, the, other, the other aspect of that is I understand there's been you know, you, you see a seesaw, two kids on a seesaw in the, in the playground, and, you know, the heavier kid, obviously, he's going to be down on the ground most of the time. The lighter kid's going to be up in the air. But uh, it, it reminds me of what we see uh, in the, that kind of federal bureaucracy, uh, that the preponderance of power in the hands of the, the federal government means the state governments are, are the ones that are up in the air most of the time. They do not have uh, the control that they ought to have. And so you're right. We've got a whole bunch of alphabet soup organizations, the EPA. OSHA and on and on the list goes, that should be at the state level. The state should have its, you know, environmental protection or OSHA, if, the, if that is to be at all, not the federal bureaucracy, because uh, that, that does not allow the power of the people to regulate and control those agencies that wind up being our masters and telling us what we can and cannot do. I remember the, the terrible one, the law, uh, uh, the waters of the U.S. Uh, legislation. No, not even legislation. I think it was just the EPA uh, issued this. And, uh, one of the good Supreme Court decisions recently was to say that if you had a, a mud puddle in your backyard, that the EPA could not say that that's the waters of the U.S. and therefore it could regulate and control that as a wetlands, which they have done. <laughs> Believe it or not, they were about to fine this guy $40,000 per day because he filled in a mud puddle on a, on a piece of land where he's proposing to build a house. And they said, oh, no, 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 that's wetlands. It was connected to no waterway that ultimately connected to no body of water that was uh, waters of the U.S., but the EPA had that regulatory power and they were about to crush him. Uh, but uh, after a large expense of money, that man was able to have the Supreme Court see the unconstitutionality of that. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we are blessed to be bringing you the American view of law and government. And that is, there is a creator God, the God of the Bible. Our rights come from him and from him alone. And the only purpose of human civil government is to secure and protect those God-given rights. Join us next Friday morning. We the people. The Constitution Matters here on WFYL at 8 a.m.